Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Amber, Lisa wants to know, after 18 months of sobriety, my husband has taken up occasional drinking again. When he drinks, it is in secret and often to excess. Is there a reset button so that he could begin drinking again with more control? To me, this is playing with fire and it terrifies me, but I want to know what you think. It's bad news. (laughs) It's already, it's already, she's already saying that he's sneak drinking, which is one bad sign. Sneaking is always an addictive thing. And then, and excessively on top of that so he's already showing that it's not it's not working I have not found that to work I have found that most people need to go through that and try that though and test those waters a few times so while I don't think that's going to work I don't want it to scare you too much because almost everyone does that I don't know how many times this person has been sober but if it's like their first or second time it'd be normal if it's their 30th time then I might be more concerned. <laughs> yeah, I know I had a lot of confidence in the concept of resetting my brain and starting over, mm-hmm. which is why it took me 10 years to get sober because I tried that a bunch of times and turns out it doesn't work. That's right. great. Everybody Thank has you. to try it, yeah. 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 We have, we are blessed, Sherry, to have Amber Hollingsworth rejoining us today. Amber is an addiction counselor who values the role of family in addiction re- in the addiction recovery process. She shares a wealth of resources on her Hope for Families website, but many of our listeners and our panelists that are on the call with us today know her for her engaging and informative YouTube channel, Put the Shovel Down. She is the one and only Amber Hollingsworth, and we are proud to call her a friend. Thanks for being with us, Amber. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. I wish we had like applause, like soundtrack. I know. Was like I was like, <laughs> I wanted to clap so bad. So <laughs> that would have been cool. <laughs> A bunch of different Zoom people clapping at the same time. Can you imagine the distortion? <laughs> oh, that'd be awesome. Although I can see it in their eyes, they're internally clapping. We also have a bunch of panelists, a bunch of friends of ours, people that we've worked with and gotten to know. They're on the call here with us today. That first question that I read came in email form from one of our friends, but many of the questions are going to be asked live by the other panelists on the call with us. Without further ado, and to dramatically reduce the amount of talking I do today, let's go right to Alma. Alma, you've got a question and we would love to hear it. All right. Thank you. Um, Thank you so much for taking our questions today. So, Um, my question is, um, I am in a relationship and, um, my partner has, um, come to a point where he is, um, uh, come to his own realization that he would like to find sobriety. He was able to achieve that for about a year and then experienced, um, some relapses and has been in a pattern of relapsing periodically since that time. And, um, you know, we kind of use the uh, metaphor 
it's kind of like a stock market. We're up and down, but in general trending up, I think. And, um, but in any regard, um, we're at this point in our relationship, we've been through a lot together. We've had a lot of trust breaches and it has really um, greatly impacted the foundation of trust that I feel in the relationship. And um, I feel, I feel like my, you know, love and attachment has really transformed into a really strong ambivalence um, where I feel deeply attached to him still and I love him. And also, um, I just don't know if I'll ever regain the trust that's needed for a sense of safety and security in our committed relationship. And so I find myself vacillating a lot with um, what does the future look like? How do I what am I aiming towards? And um, it's just uh, makes uh, makes the main relationship in my life feel very uncertain at times. And so my question is, do you ever um, talk about this term of ambivalent love or how do you as the spouse, how do you navigate that effectively? How do I heal myself? How do I, you know, what, what do I expect with this moving forward? Um, if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, um, I'm going to answer, but I will say this. Um, I, in my practice, we've had a lot of counselors. Some of the counselors see the family members. Like I have one that specifically sees the spouses, usually the wives. And then I have one that sees parents and I usually see the addict. So my best knowledge is what is going on with him and what you need to do with him. But I'm going to do my best to cover your side too. But I have other counselors that are like super good at that. Because we call it lawyering and they look out for you. And I'm like defense attorney. I have to look out for the addicted person. That's what I do. So, <laughs> so um, I think one of the big reasons why your your ambivalence hasn't passed is because of these lapses. You, you can't let that guard fully down until you feel like it's safe to do that. And, and I can tell <laughs> until you talk and you're calm about it that you understand rationally that these lapses are going to happen and you get it and you're not overly reactive about it but but on the other side of that how are you supposed to let yourself be completely vulnerable and guard all the way down with with somebody who's like the stock market right so I think that there probably is a way to communicate that uh, without being mean or nasty or you know like punishing or anything I don't know if he ever brings up like I don't know if he can tell that you're more distant or something like that but if you ever had the opportunity I think it's okay to 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 talk directly about that without mean accusatory anything because he's if he's having these lapses and they're not lasting long it can be very problematic because in his mind it's almost like little vacations and I'm getting it back under control really quick and that's less incentive to keep them from happening. It, it sounds terrible, but it's better if a lapse happens, if it just goes until it hits a wall somewhere. <laughs> so because if, if he's lapsing and he's two or three days and he gets it together and a week and he gets it together and three days and gets good in the mind of the alcoholic, it's going to be like, oh, I'm managing it. It's like a form of managing it or bargaining. And that's probably keeping him stuck in his recovery process and you stuck in your recovery process. That's my guess. That's a super helpful. Yeah, that's a super helpful distinction. 
between what relapses can look like. I was a long relapse guy. I would, I would more make the decision. I'm, I'm just going to drink again for whatever reason we don't need to go into. And then I would drink for six months and then I would try sobriety again. And so I don't have a lot of experience with those quick short-term lapses. I'm really glad that you addressed how problematic that can be. Cause I've always been at kind of a loss for what exactly to say about that. And, and how it's giving them that false perception of that they're able to manage and control and contain the drinking a recovery vacation. Yeah. That's a good. That's a good point. Oh God. That was great. All right. Let's uh, call it there, everyone. I got what I needed from this conversation. So thank you for, no, I'm kidding. I would like to go to Lauren though. Lauren has a question about balancing encouragement and supportiveness and boundaries. I can't wait to hear this question. Okay. So um, unfortunately my partner's here, so I'm hoping there's not too much background noise for the second. Um, so my question, Amber, and, you know, I know you talk so much about the importance of family support and, you know, how we have to encourage our, you know, alcoholics and focus on the positives and, and give them the encouragement. So what tips do you have for me as a wife on balancing that encouragement and support and trying to get sober um, with boundaries? Um, specifically during that problem recognition stage or very, very early sobriety? It's, it's a really hard question. And that's kind of, I was saying before in our office, we have the two counselors um, because sometimes there is a conflict of interest between, you know, your needs and their needs. And it is really hard to balance your needs and their needs. The, the best thing I can tell you about the boundaries is, you know, where does it come into your lane? Where can you back up and take care of yourself and focus on you? And I know that's like all that general stuff that everyone says, which I kind of annoys me, you know, because it's not that helpful. <laughs> but if you could tell me an example, maybe of something that's happening or a boundary or something, maybe where there's an issue, I could probably give you a more specific answer instead of one of those vague, lame general ones. <laughs> well, I think, okay, so just one example, um, you know, when he's, actively drinking the, um, you know, the relationship with the kids is impacted because he engages in some behaviors at home that are, you know, he likes to pick fights or, or start arguments and, um, you know, isn't just the most kind person in the way that he speaks, um, to me around the kids. And so, you know, I will try and disengage from conversations or, or not continue fights or things like that. Um, and then he will come back to, well, you're not supportive or, you know, you're not, you know, you're not there for me. You just, you shut me out. You don't want to talk to me. So why do I want to be home if you're not going to talk to me? Um, and so there's just kind of that like back and forth of like, how do I engage with him? So he feels like I do want him around and I do want him to be part of our lives with, no, I'm not going to engage with you when you're hurtful. I think, I think some of that is him sort of gaslighting you. He's putting that back on you, telling you it's his, it's your fault. <laughs> like, Supporting someone as they're figuring things out is one thing. Supporting someone and dealing with their crap while they're drunk and they're being obnoxious or something like that, that's a whole nother thing. And he knows that. And he's just sort of like putting that back on you. So I would hold that boundary of whatever you need to do. I call it being neutral. You know, if they're if they're just annoying and they're not like abusive and terrible, then just go neutral, right? Just sort of like pull yourself away, pull the kids away. If it's if it's bigger than that or worse than that, and it's somehow not not good for you and the kids to be there, then I would take a step further and I would like remove yourself from it um, physically, like leave the house even if you had to. 
And if he says you're not supporting me, you say, well, you're right. I don't support that particular behavior, but I know you're going to figure this out and I love you. That's what I would say. Thank you. It's helpful and also validating. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's great, Amber. Meg, Meg has a question about the impacts of family history. Meg, let's hear it. Okay. Thanks, Amber. Um, yeah, my question is about in one of your um, recent, I think it was a Facebook post, you talked about how it's important to get to the um, roots of their motivation in recovery. So I was interested in the um, perspective of the alcoholic, what the family, if they come from a family like rich in history of they're all alcoholics, this is a learned behavior. You know, how does that impact their motivation for recovery? It, it can go any number of ways, honestly. It can keep them in denial longer because they can be telling themselves, I'm not like my dad was. How dare you tell me I'm an alcoholic? Like I've lived with an alcoholic and I know it looks like it's not like that. They can tell themselves, they can tell themselves like, this is just what the people in my family do. And I'm sort of let myself off the hook of, I can't help it because that's just what we do. Or it can be a motivating factor where they see that they're sliding into territory that they've watched someone else slide into and that they they don't want to go down that road. It's really how they interpret it. And it depends on what stage of change they're in, how they're going to interpret it. If you want to give me like a specific example, kind of like the last one, I can tell you more specifically probably what you're dealing with. Well, I just was generally curious about it because um, if there's I was especially interested in learning about how their brain is constantly working. I think it was like you were talking about how they're constantly evaluating, constantly seeing what other people are doing and things like that. And so um, if it's a behavior that has been ingrained in them since childhood, because that's what they know, um, just, you know, things to watch out for from the alcoholic perspective, that's what I was interested in. So I don't have a specific question about that. Okay. I'm, I'm not sure if I can give you a super solid answer on that because I, I feel like it could go, there's so many ways that could play out. Each individual person views it differently. And so I don't know that I can, I can tell you that. And sometimes it's like, how do they want to view it and how healthy are they at the time? Yep. Amber, I want to throw a uh, email question at you now. Kate asks about, Chaotic mind syndrome. She says, Matt, you speak of chaotic mind syndrome. I know you're creatively describing your mind in active addiction. My husband has chaotic mind syndrome. And I'd love to get Amber's thoughts on this. And so just a little more color to that. I, I felt like my brain was always going a million miles an hour. And the alcohol was the only thing I could find that would calm that down and shut that down. And so I think what Kate is getting at, and I know what I'm curious about, I want to know how weird I was. How frequent is it that you run into people that say that, that the alcohol is the thing that calms them down? And is the other thing it was for me was it was a signal that I could be done with the workday. And without the alcohol, I had nothing to signal that. And I couldn't stop. And my brain would just run amok. Is that something that you run into? I would say almost every time, way more often than not. And I tend to see a lot of like businessmen, A-type personalities, you know, otherwise pretty successful people that drink too much. 
And it is sort of hardwired into their personality to be go, 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 go. Some of that thinks personality type and some of that is ADD. The correlation between ADD and addiction, it's just really like two sides of the same coin. It's, it's one central issue, which is like a dopamine issue. It's just two ways it's playing out. And so there is some truth into that. That's oftentimes how they start the pattern is like, they're not very good. Like at the end of the day to just be able to like sit down and be calm and relax and play with the kids and be present. They, they're just not good at it. Like I'm like that. I'm not good at it. I can tell you. Um, and, but they feel like they should be. And so they start using alcohol or marijuana or something like that to be able to bring it down. And it works pretty good for a while. But the problem is, is that the rebound from the alcohol makes that very symptom worse. And so the longer the drinking goes on, the worse and worse and worse it gets. And it's not, and then it's not just like I have energy and I can't settle down. It's like I have anxiety and I'm irritable. It's a, it's a different kind of uncomfortable energy that happens after the alcohol rebound, which then makes them feel like they need it even more. And that's how they get trapped in the cycle. Well, I certainly felt trapped in a cycle, so I can relate to that. Thank you very much, Amber. That's great. I'm glad to know that I was not alone. I had a feeling. Yeah. But I'm glad to know that I was not alone in that. Well, I often would wonder, like, if you had ADD or ADHD, because you had no ability to, like, kind of settle down, shut it off. You always had to be working on something, even after work. Yeah. You always had like extracurricular jobs or just volunteering. There always had to be something more going on. Well, now it's volunteering soccer. Now it's kids. just a, it's a hobby of mine to tell, like, especially at night when you're trying to wind down, I like to tell you all the things that are going on to make you thankful that you're not inside my head. And I often say that I'm glad I'm not inside your brain. I'll go back to doing what I'm doing peacefully. One Maybe, of the things I try to teach people is that that's who you are and you're made to be that way. And it's a gift. And, and when you start realizing that and you just understand that's your operating system and harness it and just roll with it instead of fight against it, then you're going to reach your like maximum superpower level. <laughs> that's the way I like to say, I'm like, no, you're supposed to be obsessive. You're supposed to do something great. Like let it roll because trying to make it stop is what's causing the problem. Just do it well, and I think if you do that with kids, I mean, if that's their personality, you do it with kids and you really say, embrace it. Just, we have to work on a little bit of boundaries, a little bit, you know, then yeah, I love that. You're, you're going to have a suit. You have a superpower. Here you go. You just need to learn to harness it a Control little bit. It. Right, right, right. Yeah. But don't, don't think you're supposed to be different. You're just, because the only way you're going to make it different is to pour a bunch of chemical on top. And that's what got us here. So it's not, it doesn't work anyway. So. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Katie, Katie has a great question about when separation happens, separation leading to divorce, that kind of thing. Katie, I'd love to hear what you have to ask Amber. Yeah. Hi, Amber. How are you? Hi, good. How are you? Oh, I'm doing okay. Um, yeah. So I've been watching a lot of your videos lately. Um, I think the frustrating thing with me is, so I've been married to my husband for 20 years um, we have five kids. Um, he grew up in Ireland, um, came here when he was like 20, I think 23. So that culture of drinking is definitely ingrained in him. Um, and then paired with probably in like 2019 due to health problems and then some um, work issues, he kind of, I, I really feel like he's been depressed since 2020, like heavily. 
Um, so I'm at the stage where I've, you know, um, started the process of separating from him legally, uh, just so he's not, I'm trying to get him out of the house and so that he can't come back. Um, and you know, my problem is, is I don't know how to support him because I still, you know, I still want him to get better regardless of if we have a future, you know, I still want him to be a good dad for the kids. Um, but I feel like anytime I try to like reach out to him to try to help him, he kind of uses that and manipulates that because he just wants this to stop. He just keeps saying, we got to fix this. Like he, he's not, he doesn't believe this is happening. Um, so I don't know how to support him because I, I know that I'm, you know, his best friend and, you know, he doesn't have family in where we're at. And, um, yeah, I just don't know how to, what to do without him taking advantage of it. I think, I think that you might be trying to do something that's not possible. <laughs> and I yeah. don't, I don't mean that from a bad place. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, when two people break up and then they say, well, let's try to still be friends, how that right. just doesn't work. Not, it can eventually, but not in the short run, because especially if one person's still more in love with the other person than the other one, right? So you keep trying to be in his friend zone, but he wants more than that. And so in some ways it's sort of torture for him. Right. That's what I'm guessing is that when you get close and you show like a kindness or something, it sort of, like you said, it gives him that hope. And then, and then he starts trying to pull back, you know, too much. And then you, you feel like you need to back up. Am I understanding that? Right. Am I, I don't, I could be. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, so like in some of the things I've listened to you say, it's like, you know, just the other day I was watching one of your videos and it was that idea of, you know, if somebody, if your loved one reaches out to you, it's not, you know, it's, you shouldn't say, well, you have to do it yourself. Like if they're like, can you help me? And they're very specific. You're like, yes, I can help you find a number or I can drive. And I've always said that to him. Like, if you want to get help, I will drive you to, you know, a rehab center. I will drive you to, um, you know, a doctor's like, I will do that. I just won't sit and do nothing. Okay. For instance, I gave him $20 because he, he's not working. He hasn't been working for years. And I gave him $20 um, to get food. And we had gone to lunch and I gassed up his truck. And um, my son was graduating from eighth grade and he came back to the house because I had to go back to work. So he came back to the house to take a shower. And I think he stopped and used that $20 to get beer. And by the time I came home from work and was getting all the kids ready to go to this graduation, you know, he, I can tell he's been drinking and I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't let him in the car to take him with us. So you know, it's, that's how he takes advantage. So I'm like, okay, I'll help you. But then, you know, he just, he can't control it. And like I said, he's, he's super depressed and he won't admit it. I was just gonna say he's super depressed because he's at stage four alcoholism. He was okay. probably at stage three up until 2019. And then what happened in a lot of people in 2020, they went from stage three to stage four because of COVID. And so the, the, the massive depression and anxiety comes on as a result of that end stage um, alcoholism. It's a symptom of that. But, but what the person will feel like is like, I'm just so depressed. That's why I'm drinking. But the reality is I'm just so depressed because I'm drinking. Right. Right. Is, 
is part of how you diagnose that, Amber, if like, I think that example is pretty clear cut, right? The money was intended for one purpose and you can't fulfill that. You immediately turn that into alcohol. Is that a big sign for you that we're at the end of the line here? The, the big sign for me was the shift that she talked about in the, the 2019 and he's not working and he's not functioning. So he went yeah. from functioning to non-functioning and, and he can't control it. So, so to me, the signs were before you before the $20 thing, it was when he, he no longer could go to work. He no longer could function. Now we are in stage four. Thank you. Very helpful to clarify how that, that your thought process works there. Oh, scary stuff. Thanks for the question, Katie. Really appreciate it. Leah, you've got a great one about the differentiation between sobriety and recovery. Yes. Hi. Um, I, so my question was, what advice do you have for someone whose husband is sober, but not in any kind of recovery? And I mean, I can give you background information on it. Um, my husband was very badly in the cycle of relapse, you know, stay sober for a week or a few days, relapse again. He was in the cycle for a couple of years and then he was in a very bad car accident. Um, and so that was a couple months ago and he's been sober in quotations ever since, um, he hasn't drank anything, but he hasn't uh, gone to, you know, recovery, which he has done in the past. And he has been able to be in recovery for a significant amount of time in the past. So my question is, what advice do you have for me as the person who's supposed to be supportive and, you know, say, I'm proud of you for not drinking, but there's still that thing in the back of my mind, like, but what else are you going to do? You know? Well, I, I kind of have a question for you. Yeah. He had a major car accident. Is he on pain pills now because of that? No, he's on um, just like a nerve blocker. Yeah, he's on gabapentin. It's just okay. a nerve blocker. Um, and it also helps with his anxiety. Um, but he's not, he, he won't take the pain pills because he knows, well, he knows himself, <laughs> you know. Double thumbs up. Yeah. Because you don't want to go down that road, I promise. I found that gabapentin has actually been pretty helpful just in the treatment of alcoholism. Um, it helps to block those same um, anxiety type feelings that make people want to drink. Only it does it in a, in a fairly non-addictive way. You can abuse gabapentin, but I've only seen a couple people do it. It's not that great to abuse, but it will help decrease the cravings and stuff. So that could be kind of like a mixed blessing or like a, a silver lining, I guess maybe is the right term that could be helping him. I think it's really hard for the addictive person to hear and feel that that feeling of like, are you going to go to your meetings? Did you call Amber? Like, did you take your medicine? It just feels crappy, you know, to hear that. What you and and the truth of it is, is someone doesn't have to go to meetings forever and counseling forever. If he's had recovery on and off and he's been, he probably knows what he needs to do. But what he does need to do, which might be kind of hard if he's not feeling well, is um build a life that he likes. You, you have to be growing in some kind of way, but maybe that's some, some other kind of way. He's pursued some other kind of interest. He's excited about something else. He needs to be growing, but it doesn't always have to be talk about your alcoholism because 
there's a certain amount of that that's helpful. And then, and then for some people, it's just annoying and aggravating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. I mean, he's definitely been in recovery before. And I always tell him, you need to find a community. If it's a, a kickball team, or if it's like a group of people they go have coffee with once a week, you just need to find some community. Because what he tends to do is stops drinking and then he gets obsessed with work. So now work is his life. Work is his life. And that's, you know, uh, kind of, he says he likes it, but I'm like, but don't you want like a social life and friends and not everybody wants that as much. Right. You sort of like that workaholic type. I'm like that. I'm the same type. (laughs) Yeah. Even though I'm a counselor, like if I have a problem talking about my feelings to other people, isn't that helpful? (laughs) figuring out how to solve my problems and researching everything about it and, and like getting a coach or somebody who's going to tell me what to do. That's helpful. So if he's sort of a workaholic and he likes that, then he might be one of these people that can like really get into just like self-improvement, self-actualization, making 20 times more money. I would roll that way because that's going to feel good to him. And that's going to work with that personality type. And it's going to keep him on the straight and narrow. So, so better than like a, a volleyball team or a softball team or something like that. If he joined like a group of, I don't know what he does for work, but salespeople or entrepreneurs or whatever it is that were trying to further themselves. And a lot of those communities have good, it's almost like men's groups and churches, but it doesn't have to be religious. Like we're trying to be better men too, or better business people or whatever it is. Like a lot of times it has some values and stuff attached to it. If he could find one of those programs, um, that would probably fit his personality better. The concern that pops into my head when I, I love the suggestion. I mean, being active and active in something that is of interest to you makes a ton of sense. But a lot of times those kind of social business mixed groups are held at the bar after, you know, at six o'clock and, um, do do you see people run into that amber you know you say hey go get active outside of your recovery work and then the only options are beer fests the the thing i'm probably more thinking of in in the business world you know they have like things like masterminds um they even have virtual i'm i'm a part of several different ones like trying to learn how to do youtube and this and that where there's a, a central focus of what we're trying to do here and encouragement and problem solving and, and in those groups, people naturally even bring in their personal stuff and talk through that. Like, for example, a few years back when I was just starting my business and then realized I didn't know what I was doing, sort of an eye opener, I joined this group called Vistage, which is it's called like a leadership group. But it's really once I got in there, I realized it was group therapy for business people. <laughs> and so, um, you know, you have they're, they're teaching all this business stuff and stuff like that. But I promise you, like way more of it was talk about. Like my wife is mad at me. How do I get her to talk to me? More of it was like therapy than anything else. Something like that, a good healthy group. I'm not talking about meet my sales buddies at the bar or entertain customers. I'm talking about something else. Yeah. Yeah. Something with a real purpose and and assembly yeah, so of agenda cover. and like, maybe a, a topic. topic. A book club. Yeah. <laughs> you know how those the mommy wine club <laughs> thing. Book club. Yeah, how that rolls. I'm glad sure. you asked question Matt because that helped me I didn't think about that but that was a good differentiator question yeah yeah yeah, absolutely well 
since we're kind of talking about, you know, recovery and therapy, here was a question that someone had asked. Um, it's a two-part question, but why are some alcoholics so resistant to therapy? And are there some communication techniques to help them see the benefits of therapy? People are, all, I mean, all different kinds of people can be resistant to therapy, um, not not necessarily just people with addictions. Um, there's a there's a, a lot of different reasons. Sometimes they're resistant to it because they just don't want to change, and they don't feel like paying somebody money to tell them they need to change. You know, in their head, that's like. I don't need, I know I need to change. I don't need, you know, I don't need to pay Amber to tell me that. You know, understandable. Um, sometimes they're afraid if they go, they're going to be pushed harder than they want to push or forced into doing things they don't want to be doing. And then sometimes they're just, especially if they've never done it before, they don't come from a family where that was done. It's just like weird or awkward or like, I'm not crazy. Like, why do I need, you know, there's all different kinds of reasons, I guess, why people are resistant to it. So I would find out what the reason is for the resistance and then address that specific reason. Do you, can you like throw out like a couple of like questions you could ask the person to kind of get them to open up, um, to ask, figure out why they're resistant? Like, do you have like a, you know, since you talk to that, um, addict side, I'm sure you have ways to draw people out and open up. Do you have any Kind of standard line that maybe a partner could use to their for their partner one thing i say to my new clients because most of the people that come see me get drug in by their like parent or their spouse you know they they get sort of leveraged in fine i'll go to hot amber one time just shut up. you know basically that's what i know has happened before they get there and so one of the things that i i say to them is i say it's kind of weird to come talk to some strange person about your personal business, right? <laughs> and then they'll laugh and they'll be like, I know. And I say, don't worry about it. It's my job to be on your side. What do you need me to do for you? I'll take it for you. And then I sort of win them over. So you want to sort of meet them where they're at and just be like, it is kind of weird, right? And it's kind of expensive. Like whatever their resistance are, just acknowledge them because they're probably a little bit of validity there. And so once you can acknowledge what they're already thinking, it helps them to get past thinking it because you're acknowledging it. <laughs> it is kind of weird to talk to a stranger, right? Awkward. <laughs> it is kind of expensive, right? You know, whatever their resistance is, just validate it. Great. Well, you have incredible authenticity and charisma, which I think helps you break through. Um, I'm sure you've been told that before, but you are so easy to engage with. I know one of the reasons... I was anti-therapy until I am now completely 100, 180 degrees the other direction and believe we should all be in therapy starting at a young age. One of the reasons I just conflated therapy and uh, psych meds. Like I, I didn't know you could do one without the other. That's how ignorant I was. I thought everyone who goes to the therapist gets, it's gonna be gets put on an antidepressant. The red pill or the blue pill. Yeah. Like there was no, no talk therapy. Well, yeah. And you also had like a situation with your a family, a couple family members. And that's probably why you associate that with medication because that's what happened with them. Yeah. 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 And, and I'm just like, how do they show it on TV? You know, they're going to make me lay there and talk about my dreams. Like that's just weird. You <laughs> yeah. know, if they're really resistant to therapy, you can also say, how about a coat? But does that seem better? And one of the things I tell my new clients that are worried about, I say, listen, dude, 
having your own therapist is like super trendy. It's like having a personal trainer. It's literally status. Like, what do you want? Everybody's cool, has their own counselor. Like they talk about it on the reality shows and then they start laughing. They're like, yeah, it's kind of true. I'm like, yeah, it's like status. <laughs> That's what I say. It is. That you got one and you could afford one. Yeah. It is. It is. It's like it's personal sign of prosperity. Yeah. It is. You have an in. Yeah. Well, yeah. while we're on the topic of therapy, Mindy's got a great question about your whole family approach. Mindy? Yeah. So, um, you know, I clearly did not find treating the whole family was available. Um, I did have a program for smart recovery that had a meeting on Tuesday nights for the families. Um, I did my homework and was a good student. And then the relapse showed up and I lost my um, mind. So You relapsed uh, too. Yeah. Yeah. So happened, yeah. My question is, as far as treating the whole family, that model, I love how you talk about the lawyering up. And we are in a good place now. We have a therapist that actually, she sees him. She'll see me separate. She'll see us together. So in a way, she's kind of doing what you're doing, except she's doing the whole entire thing. Feel sorry um, for her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I just wonder if there are other institutions around the country taking on your approach, because this therapist has even seen each one of our kids with him to talk through it, and they're young adults, to talk through things that they were concerned about. Um, I just think it's so important to treat the whole family. And when he got out of rehab, it was just kind of like, oh, here you go, back to life. <laughs> yeah. um, I, we had, I had a workbook. I mean, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> Here's your pamphlet. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. yeah, I love it, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, so first I'll talk about how I came to the family approach, why I think it's so important. And then I'll, and then I'll, I think there's just another part of your question, which is, are there other places to find that and that kind of thing? Um, I came to do the family approach when I started, I was working in a psych hospital and I was treating adolescents with substance abuse, teenagers. And I had like an IOP program, which is just like intensive outpatient. And so as a substance abuse counselor, what happens is, is you get caught in the middle. You've got this client who's your client coming to you complaining about their family being controlling, nagging, preaching, critical, all the stuff. And then you got their family member freaking blowing up your phone, trying to tell on the client, be like, well, did he tell you he did this last week? You're like, no. You know? And you feel trapped in the middle. And you, as the counselor in the background, you know, I would kind of know like, okay, like she's doing this and, and he's thinking this. And if I could get her to stop doing that, we could get somewhere. But you also have this like conflict of interest where you're, you're trained as a counselor to put those boundaries up that the client, that your person is your person and not to try to mix it. And there's a lot of reasons for that, like ethically and legally and stuff like that. And so most people, counselors, treatment centers, they, you know, they'll let you call and say what you're going to say, but they're not going to give you much feedback back. And I understand why they do that, because it's hard to be trapped in the middle like that and be you just feel pulled in the middle of the whole situation just as a person. But the problem is, is like you need the I need the family's help. <laughs> I can't do it by myself. So. So there's just several reasons why, because a lot of times like family, not knowing what I'm doing, like if I'm letting someone go through the bargaining stages 
and someone's telling me, well, I'm just going to drink on the weekends. And then I say, well, let's try that. Well, then they go home and they tell their spouse, Amber said, I could just drink on the weekends. And then you think I'm a crazy idiot falling for every stupid thing he's saying, not understanding like this is part of my master plan, right? So part of having the family involved is so that the family understands, all right, we got this. This is part of the plan. We know where we're going and why this is happening and what we're going to do next. And then the other part of it is because I need the family's help. It's like volleyball egg. I set it up and you spike it over and you set it up and I spike it over and that kind of thing. So that's why I think it's so important and how I found it to be super valuable. The practicality of it is rough. Like the expense of it, the difficulty of it. Like when I set up my practice that way, you've got at least two people coming like each week for a while. That's a lot of money and a lot of time. And then you throw in a kid or something in there somewhere. And now you've got a, a lot of money and time piled on top of that. So like logistically and financially, that can be very difficult to pull off. And then, and then personally as counselors, people get really worried about liability. And so they draw these hard lines to keep their butt covered basically. And, and I've just been willing to get in the gray zone, but it's risky. I get scared out in that gray zone, you know, <laughs> the, the work I do is risky, but it works. So I keep doing it. And that's part of why I did the YouTube channel is to help more families faster in a way that was because so many families can't access that much. You know, a lot of families, they can't have four people in the family going to see the counselor every week. Like even if the insurance is paying, that's a lot, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oof. I love all the ways you covered that between practicality and ethics and morals and liability. Uh, that is a lot to think about because I had the same question. Why didn't everybody do it the way Amber does? Boy, it seems like it'd be super effective, but that does make some sense. Well, uh, and I think it's just a testament to you, Amber, and about how you are willing to go into that gray area, even though it makes you uncomfortable and your passion because you see that it's working and it's helping the whole family, not just one or two people in the family. So it just makes me so impressed by your willingness to go out there and go outside of the fringe to get everybody healthy. A lot of times what happens is the addicted person feels like you're just a spy if you see the whole family and they're afraid to be honest. And so that's why when I see the addicted person, I say, look, I'm your lawyer, man. Don't worry. They got a good lawyer. You got a good lawyer. I'm on your side. So I help them understand that, yes, we are a team. And yes, the two counselors talk and we communicate. But I say, if you come here and tell me you did heroin today. That doesn't mean your wife's going to know you did it. Now, now, Campbell might know because Campbell and I might talk, but it's not going to cross over. So I let them know they still have their confidentiality. But we do have all the right pieces, because if you don't, if I didn't have that family involved and I just saw the addict, I would be making them worse. I promise you I'd make them worse because I would believe them every single time <laughs> and I would give them bad advice. I would literally be making them worse. I know that I would. That's why I'm not even sure about doing individual counseling for addiction without the family. I'm just like, I don't even know. That's risky. Unless the person's like really, really, really insightful, really in the active stage of change, really gets it, then it's probably making it worse. <laughs> Wow, I just wouldn't say that's so interesting you said that, but it would make it worse because we had that experience in the very beginning um, where a therapist absolutely 100% made it worse. And I was totally shut out of the process. And the one time I was brought in, I was made to feel like I was insignificant. 
And I was like, what is going on? And yeah, it was a horrible experience. So that's interesting you said that. I was curious about the making it worse. Thank you. I don't know if you've seen the videos about where I say like, what is your addicted loved one telling everybody else about you? They do that splitting. They get everybody against you. The main family member, they do the same thing with the counselor. They split the counselor against you. And it it is like, and they believe what they're saying, which is why it's so believable and easy for, I mean, I fall for it every time. (laughs) That's why I have to have those counterbalances. The other counselors have to come and say, oh no, Amber, he'd tell you everything. Let me tell you the whole story. I'm like, hey, (laughs) you know. It's, I love that you said, though, that he believes that because, you know, we run into topics around manipulation a lot. A lot of times I don't think, well, I know the manipulation isn't intentional. We're actually in this cognitive dissonance stage where we actually believe the stuff we're saying is true, despite the evidence to the contrary. And I think that's a great dovetail into this next email question from Lisa, who talks about and, and I want to get this from your perspective, from the perspective of the person that works with the people that are suffering from addiction. She says, what's the best strategy for working with a spouse who holds all the control because he refuses to discuss the important issues? So maybe somebody comes and talks to you. They'll talk to you, uh, but you're the only one. Then they go back home and they're closed mouth to their their spouse and, you know, the deterioration deterioration of the relationship continues even in sobriety. Is that something that you run into? You're the only safe harbor. They'll only talk to you. Yeah, sometimes that is. And and that's because there's a loss of trust on both sides. I mean, we all, we immediately understand like that the spouse has lost trust in the addicted person. What we don't always assume is that the addicted person has also lost trust in the spouse. Because to be honest, there's been dishonest, manipulative, sneaky behaviors on both sides. Let's be real about it. I mean, the the spouses doing that might be more well-intended, you know, but still, nonetheless, they've been sneaking and spying and checking up on you and talking about you behind your back, too. So there's this loss of trust. So in a situation like that, the first thing you got to do is just learn to talk about regular things. Just create some emotional intimacy in general. And then learn to talk about like harder things like the finances and the kids or, you know, where are you going to go on vacation and, and learn what you're doing is you're training them that we can have conversations that don't go bad, that you leave feeling hurt and I leave feeling hurt and it's not going to go against the wall. So it's a retraining that we can talk and it's cool. That's what I have to do. I have to train the person that, hey, we could talk and it's cool. Like we don't even have to talk about your addiction the whole time. Like we talk about whatever you want to. And so you're training them that they can have some control over that gas pedal. They're afraid to bring it up because if they bring it up, you're not going to stop. <laughs> you know, you're just going to talk about it for five hours. <laughs> so you want to retrain that dynamic and then move into that hard stuff. I love it. Start with safe topics. Sherry's staring me down because I'm the one that wants to talk for five hours. I'm guessing. Is that what you're? Yes. I, yes. That, I'm unique in that regard. You were like MO for after a bad night of drinking and a fight and our, that would come up between us. And then we would sit on our front porch and have our talks. And then you would reel off all this stuff. And I was like, we aren't even really getting to the heart of the issue. So, yeah, I think that's really interesting that you know, yeah. the alcoholic might be where you're talking about for five hours, but also it could be the stuff yeah. that's worried you're talking about. But I think that 
And maybe this is an opportunity to like, even if you're trying to build emotional intimacy, this is something like, I don't know, it just popped into my head when you were talking, like, it's when you can learn a hobby together new. So then it's like neutral for both. Do something safe. Something safe and unknown and unexplored from both. So there isn't anybody going in with a, you know, a leg up, like they know it more or, or if it's maybe reverse, like, you know, it's somebody, if you decide to do something that say the partner is trying to build emotional intimacy and they're like, okay, well, why don't you show me how to use the table saw? And, you know, and then maybe that Ooh. builds trust or something. That's a lot of trust. Well, you got to be sober to do it, but I'm just thinking <laughs> of something that would be creative that maybe they specialize in. That's a hobby they didn't do before. So it's re-engaging them and showing, Hey, remember when you used to woodwork or whatever maybe that's secretly what i'm wanting you to do because you're kind of anal so you would be a really good like you um woodworker because you would measure not just twice but like eight times and then cut once so actually that's really good because what you're doing is you're being vulnerable saying i don't know how to do everything and and you're letting them sort of show you something which kind of puts them in the hero role which gets the good dopamines and serotonins going so that's just a good suggestion on a lot of levels I did have one more thought, though, after I said what I said, and is because because this question, Matt, was the addicted spouse is going to the counselor, talks to the counselor regularly, but then shuts out the spouse. Right. The total speculation, 100 percent. I mean, I this is totally like I'm pulling it out of thin air, so please understand that. But he could be going to the counselor and talk crap about you. And just like I talked earlier could be saying things and omitting things in such a way to get the counselor to sort of validate. Cause that's what we do. We've all done that. Right. We all tell the part of the story and the way we tell it to get the person we're telling it to, to respond the way we want them to respond. And he could be doing that and he could have like this, like alliance over here with this counselor. I don't know if it's to that level, but I could definitely see that happening in situations. That's why they say there's, Three versions of the truth, your version, my true version, and the real version, right? Somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's where the whole family approach really benefits because you've got, I've got an attorney, they've got an attorney, and our attorneys are going to talk so we can figure out what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. We've heard that a lot where the one with the addiction has manipulated the therapist to believe that they don't really have a problem. That that we hear quite often in our echoes group. Yeah. Yeah. I will say though, occasionally we get in there and we listen to the addicted person and the family member they have their lawyer, and we find out that the most toxic one is the family member, not just in the way that the addiction is making them that way, but like for reals. And that's a whole different thing. Like, wow, it really is bad. Because usually mm-hmm. when they tell me my spouse is doing this, that my spouse is doing that, I'm like, take it with a grain of salt because they all say that. Because their spouses probably are doing that because you made them crazy. But sometimes I miss it because like the spouse is really crazy and they're trying to tell me that. And I miss it for like months until I'm like, oh, this is like a whole nother level. Like the spouse is abusive or something. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. most of the time. It's not yeah. Time. It's a wow. symptom of the problem. Yeah. And we all carry our own baggage into relationships and project and we get all that childhood stuff. Turns out we've all been children, unfortunately, because yeah. uh, we all carry stuff from that for sure. I've got I want to bring Debbie in. Debbie's got a 
a really interesting story and background. And she's got a question about detachment when trying to recover together. Bring it on, Debbie. Thanks. Hi, Amber. Um, actually, in some of the stuff you were just talking about, um, about talking about things that aren't the recovery thing was helpful for me. But my background, I don't, um, yes, my husband is an alcoholic, but he's been sober for 37 years. Unfortunately, we were so young, we never went through recovery. And um, everything really got kickstarted again. Um, he's had dry drunk behavior over the years, kind of in and out. But with COVID and all of that, it, it just kind of got really bad the last couple of years. So we're both in recovery now. He's been in recovery for nine months. I've been in recovery for four. And he's very willing. He's doing the work. And we're trying to work on recovery together. My question about detachment when you're trying to work on recovery together is because whenever he still has a lot of emotional immaturity. Um, he started drinking very, very young, 13, 14 years old, um, and a lot of deflecting and defending behavior because the habits have gone on for so long. So when we get into trouble is when we get into a conversation about one of those behaviors, he goes into his deflecting and blame shifting and all of that, that triggers me and it just blows up and it's emotionally exhausting and gutting. So I'm trying to figure out how do we detach, but still work on the relationship together without like it blowing up it is what you're saying debbie is that there are certain topics and we're both trying but anytime these certain topics come up it just blows up and doesn't go well and the topics are usually his behaviors that he's trying to change but that have been in place for so long um they're difficult to change but they trigger me big time how does the conversation come up um Usually, um, I might ask a question about what he's doing, or I might point out because because he doesn't know he's doing it. So he's asked, you know, to point out. So I'll point out that he's doing it, and then he doesn't really want to know. I think, or I don't, you know. <laughs> okay, what's when you say doing it? Can you tell me what you mean? Like what kind of behavior we're talking about? Um, like he tends to cut corners on things, like um, so. He, he's the first to tell you he doesn't have a lot of integrity. So he'll cut corners on stuff and not do it the way it's supposed to be doing. And then if I kind of like, eh, kind of not doing it that way, then there's all these excuses and reasons why he's doing it that way instead of just owning that he's doing it that way. Gotcha. That's probably just a personality characteristic more than an addictive characteristic is what I would say. I'm kind of like that myself. You know, I'm like the person that buys something and then tries to put it together for five hours and then finally gets mad and picks up the instructions, you know, just like dumb stuff like that. Um, so what I would say is I wouldn't, I would, one thing you could do, one of the things we do in our office is we use something called the Enneagram, which is just like personality typing, which we think is kind of fun. And looking at it from a personality perspective, here's how I see the world, here's how you see the world versus this is an addictive behavior or this is an immaturity, right? Because there is, I mean, actually, it's good to know when to cut some corners. It's, it's also just as problematic not to be able to cut a corner. It's best when you know which ones to cut and which ones not to, right? But looking at it from that perspective, which is like a non-judgmental way and like a fun way of understanding each other and world perspective and how you function, that's probably the way I would come at those conversations. 
That's oh, okay. actually helpful. Okay. I've done the, I'm very familiar with the Enneagram. Okay. I, yeah. I've done it. Um, I don't think he has. So that might be really interesting. It might be kind of fun. I mean, I think it's kind of fun. Do you know what type you are? Do you know what Enneagram type you are? It's been a few years. I don't remember. I'd have to look, Probably but we are very different. I mean, our personalities are very different. I'm, I don't get corners. Right, right. <laughs> And, and so he might get irritated with you being like, oh my gosh, you're like, like I have some clients who like, I, they never cut a corner and I say, it's my whole job to get you to half-ass something. And then it's like our fun, like thing that we talk about. And they'll say, guess what I didn't do properly this week. And they'll just tell me and we think it's fun. So it's just a fun way of talking about it that doesn't feel judgy. And, and it's a way of helping each other understand here's where I'm coming from. Here's where I'm coming from. And then how can we use our differences to be a team instead of, being critical and mad at each other. Okay. So it's less about detaching and more doing that because detaching doesn't feel right to me in this instance. Right. Right. It, it's to, yeah, it's, it's more about how do we find a way to talk about that doesn't feel icky to everybody. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I love looking at those personality types. Like mm-hmm. there's simple ones that I, I like that was Gretchen Rubin, the upholder the uh rebel the oh i forget you're the obliger rebellion yeah obliger i only rebelled later um because of just doing so much for everybody in the world um you know but those are just kind of fun but i really i did an enneagram test with our our church staff that i worked at and co-workers and we had it analyzed. So it was like how you can approach someone who's a different personality than you to go about asking, like, say our custodian, he kind of was uh, gruff. And so it was hard to ask him for things. And he took it personally when it wasn't, you know, and you're like, I'm just asking you to clean the toilet downstairs. Like, sorry, isn't that your job? But do I have to come begging for you to do it? But it was like, okay, if I asked him this way, you know, and that helped a lot. I, yeah. So maybe we'll have to do an Echoes Enneagram. Ooh. Or if you know your type, then yeah. we can all like put our types on our. At our office, we all know each other's types and we use that language. And even in my house, my husband knows it. And I'm a seven and he's a nine. And and then I'll be like, get your nine under control. And I'll be <laughs> like, my seven is so out of control today, you know? And we can even make fun of ourselves. And we, mm-hmm. and we say it that way. It's a common language. And it, it just makes it more like a shared experience. Yeah, I think in our in our uh, staff, we did it just by calling you what the name were, you know, mm-hmm. like I was a loyalist. Oh. That was one yeah. of mine. I was a helper, a loyalist and then a helper. Uh-huh. So I kind of liked that. I'd be like, I'm very loyal to you because I kind of brag that I'm my astrological sign is Leo and we have our prides and, you know, so it was just it was a lot of fun. We're getting some thumbs up for an Echoes Enneagram. I've heard people talk about that with each other like hey i'm a seven and what do you th- you know and get out of my way and i'm a nine and i go back and forth between being jealous of those people because i don't know what the hell they're talking about and thinking that they're huge dorks so i don't know i don't know <laughs> and her husband. once you get in the dorky club you'll be one of us you know you'll be like a, say, you are like you'll be like a proud enneagram dork <laughs> yeah all right i'm in i'm in uh Two more questions, Amber, if you don't mind. Uh, I'm going to read one more email question, and then Karen, we're coming at you in just a second here. 
But Leanne emailed in, she wants to know about closure. And I'm going to paraphrase this, but is, is, does recovery end? Is that whether it's individual recovery for the, the person that suffered from alcohol use disorder or trying to rebuild a relationship? Is there a finish line? That's a super good question. Like right, right before I got on this call with you guys, I like recorded a video on that topic. So it's like right here fresh. I have an answer for that. Um, and literally the video, I think is titled something like, do I have to go to these freaking recovery meetings forever? Like, can I just put this behind me? I think that's what I called it. Something like that. Um, and the, the answer is, is sort of yes and no. Do you have to go to recovery meetings and therapy and Enneagram workshops, stuff like that forever? No, you definitely do not. But just like anything else in life, if you don't work on yourself and grow as a person, you, sorry, you atrophy, you go, you go back to old habits and stuff like that. So I think you should always work on yourself. Just like, is there a point when you stop exercising? Right? Is there a point when you stop showering? No. So I think you should always be working on yourself, but I don't think it has to be like going to recovery meetings. I don't think it has to be talking about that you had an addiction. It's just, it's like your exercise for your emotional mental health and always finding a way to be working on something and growing is just healthy. So I think, yes, you should do that, but do you have to go to meetings forever? No. It's kind of like saying, yeah, you should exercise forever, but you don't have to ride the exercise bike for the rest of your life. You do something else and then something else and then something else, whatever you want. Oh, I love that. I, you know, I get all of my good advice from two places. You is one of them. And then the other one is uh, pop culture movies. So I love the line in the movie, Tommy boy, when big Tom says you're either growing or you're dying, there ain't no third direction. And that's how I would answer that question. You don't have to talk about alcohol for the rest of your life, but you got to do something or you'll backslide. So I love and that. Most, most people are fine with that. What they're like is like, do I literally need to talk about like the bad things I did forever? <laughs> you know, they want to move past that, which is, which is understandable, you know? Yeah, Absolutely. Karen, come on in. What question do you have for Amber this evening? Hi, Amber. Thanks for taking our questions. Mine might be a little bit different. My husband was older when he got sober, like over 60. Mm -hmm. And he's now been sober for more than five years. Um, but he has other issues that were underneath. He had an emotional and a mental relapse about eight months ago which they're investigating to see if it was bipolar or ADD. He bought a car, he was off the rails and just like the, the behavior was pretty much the same, except he wasn't drinking and he didn't actually run away from home. He just thought he was going to. So was he um, sleeping? No, he was not taking care of himself. And he was a former workaholic and he had a problem with workaholism and he had threatened a job that was threatened and it was, it's a part-time job, but it was the same, I don't know, behavior. So I guess, and he was very slow in recovery, real stubborn. And um, I just was wondering, do, do, is there a lot more erosion when they're older and they get sober? I mean, he was really like a whole different personality, real stuck and his voice was even changed, his mannerisms. And so, I mean, they're looking at depression and maybe mania. He's got PTSD. We're both adult children of alcoholics. So there was some stuff, you know, but it, it made me really have trust issues again. 
And um, I was just wondering, you know, first of all, the age that people get sober, if that makes a real big impact. The other thing is how often do you see that there are other issues underneath the alcohol? Okay. I'm not allowed to diagnose anybody I've never talked to. Okay. Mm -hmm. just, Just total theory. But my guess is it's bipolar disorder and it's mania. You literally like read it out the textbook. <laughs> he's not sleeping. He's spending money. He's going 100 miles an hour. That's called mania. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think that has anything to do with his age of when he got sober or anything like that. It could be that he had an underlying mood disorder like that. Like what mm-hmm. you're describing, like his voice changed, his personality changed. That to me sounds like bipolar disorder, which it sounds like his treatment providers are already like hooking into him. Right, right. So my guess is it's that, and a lot of people don't understand that disorder. They think it means moody real fast, but those mood shifts usually happen slowly over the course of like months and seasons. It grows and grows and grows and grows. And so it's really, a lot of people can go undiagnosed with that for a long time. Like it's the hardest thing I diagnose. I usually have seen somebody like a year before I realize, like, oh my God, because you see them change over the course of the year. And, and what happens is, is most of the time they just get help when they're depressed and they don't get help when they're manic. So they just keep getting diagnosed with depression and being given like depression meds and then they get manic and you don't see them during the manic part. You just see them depressed. Part. So the treatment people can miss it. So my guess is that's what's happening. That's, that's a guess. So. Right. Well, they're looking at that and working with it, but then the depression is still I mean, he's still kind of flat now. And she, he's, he's got a psychiatrist working on it. He's doing deeper therapy now. But the, the l- length of time drinking wouldn't have made his personality change so much, basically, you don't think. What you're describing, I, I, don't, I don't attribute it to the drinking because you're telling me he's been not drinking for five years. Yeah, if- he, and he didn't have that. That situation didn't come up until like four and a half years in, but I'd seen it before. It were 29 years married. And so I was almost waiting for it because (laughs) I figured there was something underneath just the alcohol. I don't know, but it's, it's even hearing you say that is just more (laughs) clue or red flag that makes me think it's bipolar disorder. Like I've seen a person that comes out every few years or something like that. That is what a spouse would say of someone who had bipolar disorder. So, and yeah, that could have been underneath and underlying the whole time. If it were literally just like the age he got when he got sober, emotional stuff, you would have seen those symptoms pop out right away. You're saying he's been sober like four and a half years and now all this shift, that is something else. Yeah. Okay. When, When someone is actively drinking and they have bipolar as an underlying issue, does the alcohol mask the bipolar? Does it make it hard to diagnose and figure out what the heck's going on? It, it does because if they're drinking, it's just like they're just being crazy and you think it's just the drinking. And so a lot of people that have bipolar disorder, they'll even like abuse substances almost cyclically. Like sometimes people that have it tend to use substances when they're depressed, trying to self-medicate. And then other people don't even use much when they're depressed. They're like too depressed to use. And they start using when they get manic and then it explodes it. So especially when you see cyclical addictive behavior, cyclical substance abuse, that's an indicator of it. It's like the substances come on really strong during certain periods and not either not there or not as strong during other periods. 
And regular mm. addiction is just progressive. It only just gets progressively worse like this. It doesn't cycle like it just goes yeah. straight up, huh? Or straight down, whichever. Pretty yeah. much. Yeah, maybe it is. Yeah. This would be better, Sherry. You're right. I should have <laughs> went like, you're right. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, let's let's shift from that uh really clinical, really uh heavy question to end on a rhetorical question that's much, much lighter. Uh, while we were having this conversation, Alma typed into our chat. Uh, I think it was around the time you were talking um, about trying to figure out uh, how crazy the spouse was. She says, as the spouse uh, of someone with alcohol use disorder, how do you know if you are normal crazy or crazy crazy? And I'm just asking for a friend. So that could be a rhetorical question. We don't need you to necessarily. We all think we're normal crazy. Yeah. It's you guys that you, the addicts that make us crazy, crazy. Yeah. That's the answer. I'll take the shot. (laughs) The question I ask is, were they always that way? (laughs) Or did they become that way recently or as the addiction progressed? And I do the same thing for like, is the addictive person really a narcissist? I'm like, well, what were they like before? (laughs) You know? That kind of of other crazy has just been there the whole time before, (laughs) after, during. That's how you know. You know what I think I love the most about you, Amber? You are a professional who will use the word crazy. I like that. You're you're just kind of laid back and fun to talk to. I certainly. It feels like the right word. I mean, it's the only one I know. It's like, no, that's crazy. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Well, thank you for spending this time with us again. We just love having you on the Intoxicated Podcast. Uh, We will put links in the show notes to your resources on your Hope for Families website. And then, of course, how we became connected to you and how I think all of our panelists know you. uh, Links to your YouTube channel to put put the Shovel Down YouTube channel. Amber, it's been a tremendous pleasure being with you today. Thank you so much for being a return visitor on the Intoxicated Podcast. Thanks. It was great. I had a fun time talking to you guys. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.